0: Philippians chapter two, looking at verses five through 11. This passage, I would say probably should be called the great example. What Paul's up to here is as he's writing Philippians, he's writing to us and he's just told us, in humility, consider other people more significant than yourselves. He's just told us, look out for the interest of others, seek to serve others, look out for their interest before we look out for our own interest. It Comes naturally to us to look out for our own interest. So now he turns to this great example, it's the example of Christ. Now what happens in this example of Christ is that Paul writes a section of Scripture here about which dissertations and books and endless words have been spilled, because he's writing about Christ. So as you go through your theology classes, you're gonna look at this, it's called one of the four great Christological passages. When we look at it in systematic theology, we take those four great Christological passages, John 1, Philippians 2, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1, and we put them under a doctrine called Christology, the doctrine of Christ. We look at how Christ was fully God and fully man, how he had two natures that were together. And so we look at that doctrine in great detail. Words on this page have been written about that, but today we're reading it as we go through the book of Philippians. As we walk through the book of Philippians, while the theological side is perfectly true and it's fair to look at all of Scripture and what it says to develop our theology, Paul has a purpose here. And his purpose here is to provide the great example of why we should live with humility and why we should live to seek to serve others. So just a few of the debates that I want you to be aware of, but we're not going to spend time on. There is much debate spent over whether this is a hymn or not a hymn. It uses exalted language, it uses some poetry, it uses some rhythmic aspects to it, but for the purpose of preaching through Philippians, it it doesn't matter if it's a hymn or not. Either way, it applies to our lives. I would say to you, though, if you have talents in writing and you're a musician, write more hymns, because we need more good, solid theology and courses and hymns and music of all sorts. So there's one application there. Much debate has occurred over whether Paul actually wrote the words. So if it's a hymn, did Paul write it? If Paul didn't write it, who wrote it? Books, articles, written about things of this nature. For our purposes, as we walk through Philippians, it doesn't matter. Did Paul write it? Did somebody else write it? Paul included it in his book. The Holy Spirit inspired it so that it's included in Scripture which is God-breathed, so for us, it really doesn't matter whether Paul used these words, borrowed these words, borrowed these words, and changed these words slightly. It's included in the text of Scripture, so it's infallible, it's inerrant, it's inspired for us. So, as we look at this today, we're not gonna get caught up in all the details of those things. We're gonna look at what the text actually says. He's writing for unity. He's writing for them to embrace the common encouragement that they have in Christ that comfort that comes from the love of Christ, that participation or fellowship in the Spirit, that affection and sympathy. He's writing to say, your salvation leads us to be unified in Christ through humility and through seeking to serve others. Well, I don't like that, Paul. I I, I don't want to be the the guy that's the the humble guy. I wanna be the guy that's the exalted guy that everybody talks good about. I don't don't wanna be the guy that seeks to serve others. I wanna be the guy that has others that seeks to serve me. And Paul says, here's the mind that was in our Savior. Have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. So you wanna be a Christian, you wanna be Christ-like, you wanna follow Jesus our Savior. Here's the great example. As we read through this text, I want to give you first the main idea of the text. The main idea of the text is that Jesus perfectly demonstrates humility and seeking to serve others. This is what we're going to see here. Jesus perfectly demonstrates humility and seeking to serve others. I hope, if nothing else, today your mind's focus on the fact Who Jesus was, what He gave up, how He sought to serve others, and how we should then be conformed to His image and made more like Christ. So, if you're able to, would you stand as I read the Lord's Word in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, going through verse 11? "'Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus.' who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that it's the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Dear Lord, there's no way to do justice to this passage. We could talk about it endlessly. We could talk about it for weeks, even in chapel. And so, Lord, I pray today that your Spirit would speak through your Word to help us catch a glimpse of what you have done in setting this great example for us. And Lord, you would Have our hearts to be focused on you that our love and affections for you may increase so that we would desire to love and serve and please you well and to be more conformed to your image as we seek to do what you have done and humbling ourselves, not exalting ourselves and seeking to serve others. Lord, may my words be tied to your text. May your text change our lives all for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And you may be seated. All right, here's our outline for this morning. We're going to start out looking at verse 5, which is the mind of Christ. We'll spend a little bit of time there, and then we're going to go to the humility of Jesus. That humility of Jesus will be seen in verses 6 through 8. And then we're going to move to the exaltation of Jesus. That's going to be in verses 9 through 11. So the mind, the humility, and the exaltation. We begin with point number one, the mind of Jesus in verse 5. So have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, If you look at the language of this, there's a debate here that actually has implication for us. Is this a theological statement or an ethical statement? There's a lot of debate spent on this, but let me tell you why it matters here. So, is Paul saying to us that the fact that we are actually in Christ Jesus, you know that loaded terminology, that loaded language, in Christ Jesus, Does that mean theologically that we already have this mind in us and that we simply need to work out our salvation? We simply need to be conformed to what's already inside. We need to put to death the old self, embrace the new self, so that we'll have this mind of humility, this mind of seeking to serve. Is this a theological statement? It's certainly theologically true. Or is this an ethical statement? Is this statement saying ethically Jesus is the perfect model, the perfect example, and that we should seek to be conformed to His image, that we should follow His example. And so Paul here is laying this out to say, have this mind which was yours in Christ Jesus. Ethically, we need to live out this way. I think fitting with the text, that's probably the better model, but it doesn't mean that because you're saying this is an ethical statement, it rules out the theological truth of the statement. Paul has told us, he wants us, in humility, to consider others more important than ourselves. He wants us to humble ourselves. He wants us to look out at others and think about their needs, not only our needs. So here, have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Ethically true, we follow the example of our Savior, theologically true, because in us we have been changed. We are a new creation. We no longer have that old nature in us. We have a new nature. We have a new self. We have to work that out because we're still, we're still tied to those sinful tendencies and so there's theological truth here as well. But we recognize that right doctrine leads to right action. Right belief leads to right behavior. Good orthodoxy leads to good orthopraxy and so we understand and know that if we believe right And part of believing, right, is to say, I have to embrace humility. I have to embrace seeking to serve others. The mindset of our nation, the mindset of a lot of different areas is not that of exalting humility. The mindset is that you blow your own horn or nobody else will, you exalt yourself. You seek together as much influence as power as possible and Jesus doesn't present that mind. Jesus who was in the form of God did not consider that equality something to be grasped but he humbled himself and sought to serve others. So we have to embrace that right belief. It's a good thing to be humble. It's a good thing to recognize your own faults. It's a good thing to look out and seek to serve others and their interests before your own. But we're not designed this way. We're designed with selfishness. I want what I want, and I want it right now. And throughout my life, God has revealed more and more selfishness even in my own life. You, You think you have it fixed, and then you find that perfect, special someone. And then you get married. And then you realize that God has taken two sinners with sinful natures and put them together and that you wanting things your way and somebody else wanting things their way creates a friction that causes you to recognize I really do like having things done my way at the time I'm accustomed to doing them. And then you have to compromise. And then you work it out. And you think, oh, we got this stuff whooped. I'm no longer selfish anymore. I've got it down pat. And then you have children. And the children that you have all of a sudden want what they want immediately because they have that same sinful nature that you have. And so if they want a diaper change, they want a diaper change. If they want to eat food, they will cry until you give them food. And they can't tell you what the need is. All they can do is make sure you know there is a need there and you better be able to figure out what the need is. And all of a sudden you realize that in your heart, even though you have a helpless baby there and you need to care for the needs, that that helpless baby crying for their needs causes you to think about how selfish that baby is because you still want your needs, I'm watching show. I don't want to feed you right now. I don't want to get up and change a diaper. I want my sleep." And you recognize, wait a second, that selfishness is a mirror that I'm still seeing in myself. So here's my good word for you all this morning as college students. Your future life is going to be one mirror after another mirror after another mirror revealing how selfish and self-centered we all are. So the sooner we recognize it and recognize immediately that selfishness and that self-centeredness and that lack of seeking others and repent and confess and seek to follow Christ, the better off we'll be. Point number two, the humility of Jesus. Look at this text and how it unfolds. It's almost as though it's two statements here. I couldn't fit all of it quite on the screen there, but you see how it unfolds. Jesus. Who though he was in the form of God, uh, doesn't mean that he wasn't God, it actually means he was in nature truly God. And there's a parallel statement here in your text because it says he did not account equality with God, something to be grasped. So you have the form of God and the equality with God. So what's being stated here is that Jesus truly was God. In essence and in every way, Jesus was and still is God. In the form of God, he emptied himself. And then he took the form of a servant. The word there is doulos in the original language, which can be translated as slave. He took the form of a slave or servant. We'll come back to this. Being born in the likeness of men. So notice the humility. Uh, This is not flattering for us because God, being equal with God, Jesus, he emptied himself. We'll, We'll dive into that in a minute. He took the form of a servant or slave. And then that's being restated in the fact that he is in the likeness of men. The parallel side there is he was found in human form. So he's humbled himself to be in the form that we are in. How low should we think of ourselves when we look at a text like this to realize that that's the humbling example of Christ, that he came to become one of us. And then he humbled himself yet again by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Let's walk through some of these. Jesus was God he was equal with God. There are implications there for the doctrine of salvation, for the doctrine of Christology. You can dive deep into those in your systematic classes. There are parallel statements. He was equal with God, He was in the form of God, He was truly God. He didn't become God at some point, there never was a time when the Son was not. He wasn't uh, adopted at baptism to become the Son of God, He was always God, equal with God, and as equal with God, He chose to humble Himself and to be born in the form of a servant. He emptied Himself, that word emptied Himself, there are, are things that are written on that as well, it's called the kenosis, the kenoa, the kenosis theory, what did God set aside, sometimes you'll hear preachers preach, so pay attention to this. Sometimes you'll hear some, some theologians write that God set aside his deity, Jesus set aside his deity in order to become man, and it's called the kenosis, the emptying, the set aside. But what we have to be careful here of is the fact that anything God set aside did not make him less than God. On this earth, he was fully God and he was fully man. Did he give up the position? Did he give up being a spirit and in heaven to take on a human form? Yes, he gave up those things, but he didn't give up his divinity. So you can't take this too far and say he gave up every characteristic that made him divine. You can't do that. Uh, Grudem in his systematic theology has some writing on this. You can refer back to that. We're reminded of what Is written in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, where it says, though he was rich for our sake, he became poor so that we might become rich. He emptied himself of of a position. You, You see him contrasted here. He's the Lord in verse 7. He's a servant in verse 11. He's a servant in verse 7. You see the nature of God in the human likeness. It says he took the form of a servant, a slave. He was born in the likeness of men in a human form. He was not less than a man. He was fully man. But the language here implies that he may have been more than a man, which we understand from Christology. It also being in the likeness of man could be an allusion back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where Daniel writes about the one who looked like a human being would receive from God power and honor and authority would forever and his kingdom would never end. That sounds like Jesus. He humbled himself. He humbled himself so much so that he washed his disciples' feet, those who would deny him, those who would betray him. He became obedient, even to the point that in the garden praying, Lord, let this cup pass by me with sweat drops of blood. He says, not my will, but thine be done. In the perfect model of obedience, resisting sinful temptation is tough, but Jesus provides for us that perfect model. He was obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Roman citizens could not be killed in this way. It's too humiliating. Jews considered it a disgrace. The cross was considered a stumbling block. Some have compared this Jesus to Adam. So I've got a chart for you. Think about how Jesus reacted. Think about how Adam reacted. Jesus, who existed in the form of God, who was equal to God, Adam created in the image of God. Jesus equal, but Adam was tempted to be like God. Jesus took the form of a slave. Adam sinned and rebelled against God and became a slave to sin. Jesus was obedient to death. Adam had death resulting from his disobedience. Everything that the first Adam didn't do right, the second Adam, Jesus came and did perfectly. Adam in his sinfulness rebelled against God who had created a perfect garden and given him a very good creation, an awesome place to live, and he rebelled because he wanted something he couldn't have. Jesus, being fully God, equal with God, didn't consider it something to grab a hold of, something he already had, yet he gave up what he already had, humbling himself, coming in the form of a human, becoming obedient even to the point of death. Adam the example that we are not to follow, and yet the one that we are created in the image of and the likeness of with a sinful nature, we should be like the second Adam. That new nature that comes to us when we are saved, that new self that we model. We move to point number three, the exaltation of Jesus. So what happens when you humble yourself? This is the biblical paradox that makes no sense. In society, you think about humbling yourself, people think less of you. Which, in actuality, humility is not thinking less of someone, it's thinking of yourself less, it's thinking of others more often. And in the economy of God, those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who Wish to be first should be last. Those who want to be the greatest should be the servant of all. All throughout the Scriptures, we see humility commended here. And so here we see the exaltation of Jesus. Now we notice first that God is now the subject of this. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him. I don't know that we can make too much of this, but we humble ourselves and then others exalt you. You see it all the time in the economy of God. You humble yourself, you allow others to exalt you. God highly exalted Jesus. He bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So what name is that? There's debate on almost every word in this passage. This is no exception. Some argue that the name is Lord. They trace it back to the Greek use of the Old Testament and talk about Yahweh and Jehovah and they say it has to be Lord. Others say it needs to be Jesus. Here in our text, it says that the name of Jesus Later, it does say they confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the great first confession of the early church. We know that in Acts, Peter says, there's no name under heaven by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus. Jesus is that name. And so at the name of Jesus, what's gonna happen? Every knee should bow. And it tells us that every knee's gonna bow. That's an action. Every tongue confesses. It doesn't mean that they're gonna be happy about it. It doesn't mean that it's teaching universalism. It means that everybody will acknowledge and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in case you're wondering what everybody means, it gives you the example here. It says those who are in heaven, those who are on earth, and those who are under the earth. Nobody gets away with escaping that they're gonna acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Does this mean that everybody that's in hell will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord? Yes. Does not mean they'll be saved, does not mean they'll be happy about it, but everyone will acknowledge one day, they will bow the knee and they will confess with their tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice here that there is no inclusivism built into this text. There is no other way of salvation built into this text. It is at the name of Jesus, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and they will confess what? Jesus Christ is Lord. Now think about how hard this would have been in the day and time where the modern confession was Caesar is Lord. Paul is writing to them and saying, be countercultural, and it may cost you. It may cost you your very life because you can't say Caesar is Lord. You must say there is one Lord. The one Lord is Jesus Christ who is the Lord. It's everywhere. It is the early confession of the church. Jesus, His human form, the prophesied Messiah, the Christ who is to come, is the Lord of all, will be the Lord of all. There is only one Lord. This doesn't confuse worship to Jesus as taking away from worship to God the Father. You go back to Deuteronomy, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, there is one God, if somebody didn't have a proper understanding, if they didn't understand a Trinitarian formula, they could be thinking about this is, this is not right, but it's worshiping Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. And from a Trinitarian perspective, we understand this. We also recognize that this relates back to what's said in Isaiah. I have this Isaiah passage for you. Isaiah chapter 45, verses 18 through 25. I don't have it all because it's too much to fit on the screen all at one time, but I have some of the important parts listed for you. This is where it talks about every knee bowing and every tongue swearing allegiance. Paul is pulling from his Old Testament here and he's looking at Isaiah 45, chapter 18 through 25 and look at what it says here. Now notice what I have underlined and bolded for you. There is only one Lord. If you're struggling with, is there another way to salvation? The answer is no. If you're struggling with, is there some other way? Is there something else? The answer is no. Look what it says here in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18. I am the Lord, there is no other. Talks about the others. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols or keep praying to a God that cannot save. Verse 21, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Notice the repetition here of there being one true God. By myself I have sworn and by my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. We see that in this text in Philippians 2. Paul saying, Jesus Christ is Lord. And that will be what every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. All right. So we see the mind of Jesus, humility, seeking to serve others. We see that humility of Jesus. We see that God has the exaltation of Jesus. And so I ask you the question, so what? What difference does it make? So since I had a short sermon prepared, we're going to take a moment. We're going to think about those differences. God, Jesus, where was he? He was spirit. He was in heaven. He was in a perfect place where everybody worshiped him and sang glory and praises to him constantly. In perfect communion with the Father and with the Spirit. He takes that perfect communion with the Father and the Spirit and he comes to be a human. Born as a baby. The God of the universe who speaks a word and everything is created comes as a baby lying in a manger. The God who speaks all of the galaxies into existence, who is the great creator, finds himself wrapped in swaddling clothes. The God who created all that we see says about himself, the son of man has no place to lay his head. The possessor, the rightful possessor of all things, the king of the universe has no place to lay his head. The God who is in perfect harmony needing nothing with the Father and the Spirit comes to earth and dedicates his life to give to people who only seek a sign, people who show up because he feeds them and breaks bread and 5,000 are fed. He shows up to a group of 12 and one of the 12 he shows up to betrays him. He shows up to a group of even his three, his inner circle that he shows even more to. And Peter denies him three times before the rooster crows. Jesus, who was in God, a spirit equal with God, perfectly located, comes to earth to be betrayed. He comes to earth to be spit upon. He comes to earth to have soldiers whip him and beat him. He comes to earth to be humiliated. He comes to earth where he's rejected by the religious leaders of the day. So what? Have we embraced the very mindset of Christ? Have we thought about how much Christ gave up for me and for you? So that when he considered our helpless estate, when he considered that we could do nothing to earn our salvation, that Christ took on flesh, added the humanity to the Godhead, fully God and fully man, and went to a cross to die in my place. For me, a rebel against his kingdom, to die for my sake so that I, by grace through faith, would be able to have salvation and be able to have that for all eternity with Him who gave me a rebel, something I could not earn and did not deserve. That's the humility of the mind of Christ. That's the seeking to serve others of the mind of Christ. And yet in my own heart, I know I don't like to be inconvenienced at all for the sake of anything. Have we thought about what Christ gave up to come to this earth? They put a crown of thorns on his head. They mocked him. They put a sign above his cross that said, King of the Jews. They made him carry his own wooden cross from trees that he had created to a hill that he had created so they could stand him up on a cross and humiliate him. As he hung there with all eyes staring, those he came to die for, the thieves, the murderers, the liars, the rebels, and yet he sought to serve us. For those years on earth, he gave it up. He humbled himself. He became a servant. The one who could command everything didn't use that ability to command. Instead, he took orders from others. He obeyed. His mom and his dad, he did what God asked him to do. Not my will, but thine be done. So as we sit here, as we reflect upon this, I wanna ask yourself, what is the mindset that you have? What is your attitude? Think about this in your own life, as I think about it in mine. Do I seek to humble myself or do I seek to exalt myself? And you know when it happens, You're, you're telling stories about something you did that was really cool. Oh, but back in the day, when I was playing whatever, oh, you should have seen me. I'm so smart, you should have seen what I did on this test. We do it naturally. We seek to exalt ourselves rather than humble ourselves. Maybe in the presence of others who are struggling with grades or struggling with other things, especially in the midst of a crazy, stressful semester like we have now, do we exalt ourselves above them? Do we make them feel, or do we humble ourselves? This is is Instagram. When's the last time you put a picture on Instagram of you doing something that was a failure? Here's a picture of my messy house or my messy room. Here's a picture when I came in last. Here's a test that I failed. We don't do that, and I'm not encouraging you to do that, by the way. Employers do look at your social media. I'm not encouraging you to put your failures out there. I'm just encouraging you to think about the mindset. Do we humble ourselves, do we exalt ourselves? Do we seek to serve others? Or do we seek to have others serve us? Hey, go do this for me. Or I'll go do this for you. Do we not just do what we're told, but we actually look out to see things that need to be done and do them without being asked? Are you trying to grasp for something that's not yours? Or are you willing to give up something you already possess? The mind of Christ is humility. The mind of Christ is seeking to serve others. The mind of Christ is giving up something that we can possess or perhaps we do possess for the sake of others. So what should be different in us As we look at this passage, as we think about our vocation, as we think about how we live with others inside of a dorm, as we think about how we deal with classmates, as we think about life in general, these are the principles that should be in our mind. And it's not natural to us so over and over we remind ourselves humility, seeking to serve others, This is the mindset it takes to be on mission for Christ. This is the mindset it takes to be a missionary for Christ. I will give up my comfort to go to the ends of the earth so others will know about the name of the one who gave up his comfort to come to this earth to provide salvation for all of us. I will choose this job over that job because I can go to a place that needs the gospel. I may not make as much money, I may not be in as big a house, but I'm gonna be in a place where I can make a difference for the kingdom of God. I don't need all the other stuff. Let me make a difference for the kingdom of God. So what's your main idea of your text? It's Jesus perfectly demonstrates humility in seeking to serve others. Now may we go and do likewise. Dear Lord, our hearts are not wired this way. We are sinful, we are selfish. It comes naturally to us to do those things. So Lord, help us each day to be in your word. Help us each day to rely on the power of your spirit. Help us each day to recognize we can't do this alone. Help us to hold others accountable, to come alongside with good friends and encourage one another in this. Lord, when we see it, may we praise it. Lord, help us to live a life that follows your example that is conformed to your image that exalts you by the way we live, not so that we will be exalted, but Lord, so that others will ask and we can tell them, for the reason for the faith that lies within us. God, may we do all of this to the praise of glory of God the Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray through the power of the Spirit. Amen. And you are dismissed.